Screenless. The TV drama is imagined. The work and the guests are real. Making a soundtrack. Welcome to the Making a Soundtrack podcast. Hello. Opening scene and action. Good morning, Dan. How are you? Uh, I'm good, thank you. A little tired, but other than that, all good. How about you? Well, I had a nightmare last night that you actually changed everything into oboe. <laughs> well, well, you know, that is the master plan. In this episode, we are on to track three, aren't we? We are, yes. So we will tell you all about that coming up. And who's behind the scenes today, Dan? Today, we have the rather wonderful Tristan Noon. Ooh, who's Tristan Noon? Tristan Noon is an orchestrator, copyist, composer, and all that jizz jazz. He does loads of stuff for some very top-flight composers in the TV drama world. Yes, and he will tell you all about that himself coming up. Thing is, though, we mention, and Tristan mentions in the interview, quite a lot of terms, which I think we probably need to explain. Oh, okay. Are you up for a challenge, Dan? Yes. If you are, I would like you to answer five questions in the next 60 seconds. Are you up for that? Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's play Count Dan. (laughs) (laughs) I love how tenuous it is. Right, and Stopwatch has started. What is an orchestrator? Uh, An orchestrator is someone who takes uh, a composer's music and uh, makes sure that it is suitable for an orchestra. What is the difference between an orchestrator and a copyist? Oh, the orchestrator, obviously, as I say, takes the music and then um, can divvy out parts, maybe even split chords and things amongst the, uh, the, the different instruments in the orchestra, whereas a copyist actually just takes what an orchestrator does and then make sure that it's all formatted and perfect and printed out for the orchestra. What is a door? Door is a digital audio workstation such as Pro Tools, Logic, Cubase, uh, Fruity Loops, those kind of things <laughs> that uh, uh, you can use hurry, to record. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Hold your studio stuff and, and put audio in and stuff. What is Sibelius? Sibelius was a composer, but it's also a computer program used to uh, write notation. What is MIDI? MIDI is Musical Instrument Digital Interface, which is used for communicating between synthesizers. Wow. Did I get there? That was exactly one minute. Wow. That's because I fluffed it in the middle when I started talking about <laughs> orchestrator and copyist. I think you just got onto a, a, a topic you enjoyed. Relaxed into it. Oh, yeah. I think we should mention this coming Saturday again. Yes. As in tomorrow. But let's do that in the notes instead. Okay. So shall we move on to cue the music? Cue the music. Cue the music. We're on to track three. We are on to track three, yes. Already, can you believe it? Um, Now, you led this one. I did. So you were lead composer on this one. So... How did you approach it? The first track, the introduction, was really setting a scene. And uh, it was, I found, a little unsettling um, in the textures that you used. And 
I wanted to contrast that with track three uh, in the sense that if we were trying to write about a location, it didn't necessarily need to be immediately unsettling. You can have a location which is very beautiful, which something awful happens in. So if you're writing about the location itself, it doesn't necessarily mean need to be unsettling or awful, yeah. you know. I think we did talk about when we were talking about the tracks originally about how we could have something that was quite beautiful, but then slightly turn it so that it, although it looks beautiful, sounds beautiful, there could be some mm. undercurrents going on. Yes, some unsavoury elements, if you will. Indeed, yes. Which I think those unsavoury elements certainly inhabit the introduction. Yeah. So that was my approach. I took a lot of the bass out of it. I wanted to want it to feel airy and nice. And I used the same, in terms of melody, I wanted to have that same DNA that you started and actually mm -hmm. is in the introductory track, that melody. So I've used the same notes. It's in a different key, but I've used the same... Uh, set of notes cool but in a in a slightly different way you arrange melody in a certain way it can sound a, a certain way if you rearrange them it can sound it can have a different feel and a different mood about it can't it yeah i think when i first heard it i i didn't instantly jump oh that's the same notes mm, great okay so i gave it a first pass i then uploaded that to google drive our shared folder you then listened to said pass i did what did you think well i loved it straight away i thought i thought it was really good i thought it again it captured a mood i thought it was not polar opposite but you know different enough from the uh from the first track we did to really fit in with the whole sort of location you know it being something different but yet still sounding like it belonged to the same score yes good and um from that i thought well, I could you you know how you listen to a piece of music and sometimes you can hear either melodies or chords or um, something that you want to add to it and instantly I could hear just some strings, uh, which I, I I quite fancied adding and then for the second half of it I thought oh I've got a great idea we could have two opposing notes so they could start off as being the same note but then one of them will go slightly out of tune either up or down. Um, or perhaps both, you know, and that would then cause a little bit of tension and it would it would do it in a way that it wouldn't be sort of, you know, like in your face, it would be much more subtle. Um, so I heard that and then uh, I also thought uh, the piano was ripe for a little bit of mangling. We were talking about having somewhere nice, but then actually seeing the, the cracks appear. Yeah. And I thought a good yeah. way of having those cracks appear was to... Um, somehow take the piano and mangle it. And I thought if I was to do a delay on the piano and if I was to do some slightly unsettling things to the to just the delay, not the piano itself, so the piano stays mm. normal, but the delay, and then that, that delay would then show the nasty underbelly of the location. Mm. Uh, one other thing that might have led you to believe that it's part of the same score the same universe is that we both use the same piano yep and so they're, they're both soft pianos and when i say soft it's software rather than a real piano and also i used some of the same things that you used in the introduction and i messed about with those a little bit so we use we, we've got these these recordings that we're clubbing together 
uh, which we can both use to make it sound like it's the same score, basically. Yeah, it's all built from the same DNA. That's it. That's it. So you added your bits to what I did. Uh, Let's have a little listen to how that all fits together. What I wasn't expecting there was the strings. I think the strings coming in and out yeah, uh, here and there. It's very subtle, but really effective. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed sort of coming in and, and, you know, putting a few extra bits on it. Mm. With the way we're doing this, where one of us takes the lead and the other one has it, you know, you need to leave enough space for mm. somebody else. So you don't want to do a whole track it's very easy to get carried away with the excitement of writing something new, I find. Mm. And you can, you know, and as I've already discussed, I'm a kitchen sink kind of person. So I like to throw everything at it and then sort of scrape away the bits that I don't like or the bits that I think could be done better or whatever. And then find, get down to the the bare bones of it. But with this, I, I just instantly knew that there was a couple of things to do. And actually what I did was I took just the piano to make the delay line. What I actually did was record it onto a a little dictaphone just through the speakers in the studio on using the microphone on the dictaphone itself. And I instantly knew that I wanted to do that. Don't ask me how or why I knew that I wanted to do that, but I did want (laughs) to do that. Something about the quality, it's a micro cassette dictaphone and there's something about the quality of those tapes that are absolutely rubbish, but it's also kind of beautiful in a funny way. And so I recorded onto that and then put it back into the computer and just moved it into the right place for it to be an actual delay and then tinkered with that inside the computer a little bit more. Um, You know, you listen to it and I just had a clear, I had a clear view of what I wanted to add to it, um, which was very subtle. I don't think there was a great deal to it, but... Uh, you know, a definite clear view, which was which was fab. Yeah. One of the things that I'm finding quite inspiring about this collaboration is that when you wrote the first track and then I got involved, it was a fresh pair of ears. Yeah. And it's been exactly the polar opposite with track three. And it's one of the real benefits, if you get it right, if you get collaboration right, it's how it really works. Yeah. Um, suddenly you're elevating your track that you think, oh, right, yeah, I think everything's in place. And then you get a fresh pair of ears involved and they go, hang on a minute, this can make it sound even better. And suddenly your track's elevated, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's that, that fresh pair of ears coming in and, and just listening to it. Sometimes even just on the first go, you can instantly mm. hear things that you would like to add or maybe just tweak ever so slightly. And sometimes it can just be a tiny tweak, but it can make such a difference. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So track three is fairly in the bag. Yeah. I think it's in the bag. Certainly in the bag enough 
that we can move on to the next track. Don Le Sac Magique. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, on there's the Jew train, as yeah, they say. Don Le Sac Magique. There's a Rosie and Jim reference for all you uh, people out there that are the same age as me. So what's next? In our little uh, guide of our tracks, Ooh. it's going to be Character One. Character theme. One. So this is where, oh, I mean, it's wide open now, isn't it? It's a blank, blank slate. We have the the shared groups of instruments and the textures and yep. the drones and rhythms and things. But in terms of what we're writing about is wide open. Absolutely. And I think uh, the character could be, I mean, you know, they could be anything. They could be anything from some. It could be. It could be, for example, the main character that something happens to, mm-hmm. um, and they could be yep. just you know a general, normal, run of the mill. Here's a lovely person. Ba ba da ba da. Something horrible happens. Ugh. Yeah, that's uh, that's drama in a nutshell for you. I don't know why they bother with these writers. <laughs> I really don't know why they bother. And I know. Or it could be uh, someone who is introduced into somebody else's life that causes Mm. upsets or friction or whatever. You always need a bit of friction, don't you? For the sake of uh, what we're doing, and certainly we actually, when we spoke to Andrea Gibb, the scriptwriter, we talked about perhaps keeping one, you know, the the good versus evil kind of thing. Yeah. Um, So having two characters, one's a good character, one's a bad character. And so we can intertwine those melodies at, some point when there's when you know when the event happens when something changes yeah so it might be an idea maybe to have one very positive theme and one very negative theme perhaps yeah i think that's a good idea um we did toy with the idea of one being major and one being minor we might not want to limit ourselves to uh to that or in fact i think we even spoke about relative major and minors as well so that uh, we could easily overlap them but uh you know nerd alert nerd 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 i think that's a good idea i think maybe the character one theme the character two theme we could almost write kind of back to back couldn't we yeah there's certainly a group of tracks rather than just one they're definitely related to each other yeah it would probably help in the writing actually if we did them at the same time noise okay i think it's time for a bit of uh, behind the scenes what do you think Behind the scenes. <laughs> One of my many, many. You see, this is why I do what I do. This everything has to be sung. Everything has a. For a man who hates musicals, I have to sing everything. Like, literally. Behind everything. The boom, boom, Behind boom, the boom, scenes. Boom. Today's guest is not only a TV and film composer, but also a highly sought-after orchestrator, copyist, and dare I say it, educator. In his already diverse career, he has worked on such productions as Lego, The Incredibles, and Doctor Who, The Edge of Time video games, with live acts such as Gary Newman, Pete Tong, and Hot Chip, as well as on the TV dramas Endeavour, Mr. Selfridge, and The Night Manager. Please welcome to the Making a Soundtrack podcast, Tristan Noon. Hi, Tristan. Hey guys, thanks a lot for having me. Um, great to be able to chat to you both about uh, all things music. You're welcome. Thank you very much for agreeing to be on. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get into the industry? 
I got in possibly the not not the most conventional way you might imagine um, somebody would get in, uh, i.e. not kind of through years of classical training and a university degree. The long and the short of it is I started piano when I was 13 years old. Uh, and then I thought I was probably going to be like a session player or something. Um, Realised I wasn't good enough at piano to do that. Uh, and then it just so happened that I went to one of the uh, Doc 2 proms in 2010. Went with my dad, which is quite bizarre because we're not, we aren't actually Doc 2 fans at all. Um, but I really enjoyed the music for that, that specific series. It was the 2010 one with Matt Smith as the doctor and Karen Gillan um, as the assistant. And um, yeah, it was just fantastic. I remember watching watching the orchestra live. They had the, the live on-screen footage playing with, with the live orchestra at the Royal Albert Hall. And I just remember coming out of there and thinking, oh, that's awesome. You know, like actually writing to picture that, that just, you know, with an orchestra. Yeah, I just got super, super um, psyched up about it. Um, so I kind of looked into it further and um, wondered how I could kind of get into the industry. And I, I really didn't know at that point. So basically what I did was just kind of email a ton of people asking for advice, how they got into the industry, you know, just, just as anyone else normally does, really. Um, and, I, you know, I studied music at A-level and that sort of thing, music tech. And then it was kind of unknown whether I would go into, go to, you know, do a degree um, in music. I wasn't that sure whether it was going to be that helpful from what people had told me. Um, so I was kind of in two minds about it. And then um, I went to university for about three months, decided... That was absolutely not what I wanted to be doing because it was just super academic. It was just mostly about reading books and writing essays. And I've done all that before at college, so I wasn't really interested in doing that all again. So I left and then, you know, I'd just kind of been talking to people in the industry. I, I got in contact with um, Alistair King and uh, he introduced me to John Lunn, who is obviously a fantastic composer for Downton Abbey. Yeah. Those brilliant period dramas. So, uh, yeah, I was at one of his sessions at Angel Studios in London. Must have been around 2013-ish, 2013, 2014. And it just so happened that I met a guy called Simon Whiteside, um, who's become a very good friend of mine now. A really, really great guy. And um, I just noticed that he was wearing this big red hat. <laughs> because on Twitter, and on Twitter yeah. it was like yeah. this infamous big red hat that he used to wear. I don't think he wears it anymore now, which is a huge shame. But um, I noticed him and I got chatting to him. And I said, look, if there's anything else you need... If you need help with anything, just give me a shout. I'd really love to work with you. And at that point, I had zero credits. Didn't I had no credits at all. So I don't know why he took a chance on me, but he, he gave me a call a few months later and said, look, I'm, I'm looking for an assistant. Are you, are you up for it? Um, so obviously I was like, Jesus, yeah, please. This would be brilliant. Um, and then it just kind of started from there, really. I would say that's where most, most of it happened for me. Um, learning on the job, him... You know, he taught me so much. I was able to learn on the job and get paid at the same time, which is just the best way of learning. And I got thrown in right at the deep end. And then the more I did, he would just kind of trust me and say, look, I'm too busy to do this. You can take the most of that workload. And then I just began to get more of my own work. You know, obviously hanging around places like Abbey Road and Angel, you begin to meet more and more people and they, they begin to know who you are and you begin to kind of find out more about them. And you both know how it works. That's, you know, it's a big... That's you know that's just how it is in this industry. You you just build up a network of friends and people that you enjoy hanging around with and you enjoy working with. And yeah, I think when you're doing something like this that requires quite often a lot of long hours and a lot of unsocial hours, you need to be with people that you can get on with. Otherwise, it just becomes a nightmare. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, and there have been a few occasions where you just think 
I don't know if you both have been in this situation, but you just think, I, I'm just not enjoying this. And it's very hard to be creative when you're not enjoying it. And it's got to the point now where yeah. I, I, you know, I turn stuff away if I'm not going to enjoy it. Because I, I think that can actually be det- detrimental to your career. And if you're in a position where you can do that sort of thing, I would definitely recommend people do it. Because, uh, you know, you just, if you start putting out bad work, you, you know, you're only as good as your last job. That's, that's how I see it. Absolutely. People don't care about anything that you've done, you know, even if it is huge stuff. If you just start performing badly, people people know about it pretty quickly. So You've done loads of stuff, though. I mean, really diverse stuff. How important do you think that is in, in the oh, industry today? Hugely. I mean, if that's one thing to take away from this today, that is... I mean, I, before this took place, I was I was thinking exactly that. It is, it's all about diversity um, because... You know, I don't mean to sound too cynical about it, but it's so tough nowadays. And I think if you're putting all your eggs in one basket in one particular sector, you know, it could it can just end. It can. I'm not saying it'll end overnight, but things happen. You know, Brexit, all sorts of things that are out of our control. Not even it's not even like you've been making errors or performing yeah. badly. Things are out of your control. Or people just can't afford you, or whatever. So, so many, so many different things. Yeah, that that should not be overlooked at all by anyone starting out today. And uh, I'm glad that I do do that because also it keeps it it keeps it interesting for me. I think if I was composing all the time, or orchestrating all the time, I you know this could be bad for my career to say this, but I, I genuinely think I would get bored. I do like to keep things varied. There's a definite thing in the industry that you're never entirely sure where your next job's coming from, so you just say yes to everything. And that's fine, but there will come a point where you are going to burn out. You're not going to be able to do the job you've been hired to do because you've been doing it straight for like 24 months and you've not had a break and your family are sick of you because you never see (laughs) them. And And you're starting to churn out the same old stuff all the time just to get the job done. So, yeah. And it's um, it's like you say as well, you know, if you're um, you're not kind of getting the job done the way you've been paid to, people, this is one thing I've realised, people do not care that you've not slept in in a week. They They just don't care. No. And it sounds brutal, but that's just the way it is. They don't care that you're tired. They don't care that you've had a stressful day. They just want... Well, I mean, there's so much money being spent on these things. Yes. And yeah. that's what it comes down to. It's not that they don't care. It's just that they've got their own set of problems. And one of those problems is that it has to be done, it has to be right, and it has to be on budget. You know, like you say, so much money riding on these things. That I think that's where a lot of the pressure that we feel comes from. Yeah. The enormous <laughs> finances behind it. It's quite... It's quite terrifying, actually. I was, I would say, I'll be quite open about this, and I'll be happy to be quite open about this. But I was talking to Gareth the other day on the train home, just about the kind of level of anxiety that I first faced when I first started doing. I would say around 2016 was when I first started getting my own jobs, higher profile than I was doing before, and handling it on my own. And just that that wave of stress just hit me. Um, the fact that now the responsibility is with you. There's no. You know, the buck stops with you. If you get it wrong, you are, you're in trouble. And I just remember that wave of terror um, and, and stress coming at me. And uh, yeah, it was uh, quite an anxiety-filled time. <laughs> you know, just trying to find, you're trying to navigate your way through it, just thinking, am I doing it right? You know, there's so, so much self-doubt in, in this job. You, you, you begin to wonder whether you're ever doing it right, you know. And also the natural reaction there is to go at it full tilt rather than stepping back and saying, right, how do I get the best out of myself? 
is that a good night's sleep is it taking breaks is it you know breathing in the air once in a while or is it just spending every waking second on this thing which actually can have like you say a detrimental effect it is i I, you know i've spoken about this before on various blog posts and stuff but i genuinely think that people think the best way is to absolutely kill themselves just doing all-nighters and 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 sometimes you have to do that but my way of looking at it now is that if i can do I mean, these still aren't great hours, to be fair, but if you can do 16 hours or something, 15 or 16, and then sleep for as long as you can, you'll wake up in the morning and sometimes problems will have been processed. I have this weird thing. It doesn't happen often, but sometimes I'll I'll orchestrate. (laughs) Sometimes I'll be able to orchestrate in my dream and I'll get up and I'll think that I've done it and I haven't. So (laughs) there'll be like three (laughs) cues that I think that I've done and I haven't, which is, you know, slightly mad, really. And in a weird way, that brings the diversifying uh, full circle, because if you are doing other things and splitting your time between other things, you actually come back to your composing role in a very fresh way. Yeah. And seeing things that perhaps were kind of muddied before. 100%. And I I would also say that I I think diversifying really helps you. It really helps you to understand the job roles. For example, if I'm orchestrating, I know what it's like to be a composer. So if a composer's done certain things, I I know that they might not necessarily mean that, but they've done it because that's the whole point of the mock-up process and that's just the way samples work. If you didn't do that, if you had no experience with samples, it'd be quite difficult to do this job considering now it's all MIDI-based and you're kind of interpreting samples. What what MIDI says is not what midi means if that makes sense by the way of when you look yeah. at it it's not necessarily when it comes out in sibelius it's like well that's what they played in but that's not what it actually is yeah that, i think there's a lot of when you move from whatever door you use and whatever midi to then sibelius i mean i have sessions that i will save a copy of and then i will do a sibelius friendly version so all the midi yeah. gets yeah. quantized and I, you know, I do all of that working out and stuff. But the the problem is that these sample libraries they sound brilliant, but quite often you'll want to play them either before or behind the beat. And there may be some stuff that you're doing where you've got this huge swell, this riser or something, and it's just a held yeah. note on a MIDI thing, and it goes way over the bar, but the it, the audio actually stops in a specific place. <laughs> but then when you go to then pass that on to an orchestrator and say here it is, I want the uh, strings and the brass to swell at this point and stop at this bar. They import whatever, and there it is, but it carries on a little bit further. So uh, just makes – and then, you then you know, you've, you've then got to phone or email or do some, contact the composer and say, look, I've got this MIDI, and it goes to this point, and did you mean that or did you not mean that? And, you know, multiply that by, you know, a 72-piece orchestra or whatever – and mm-hmm. you do nothing more than just be calling oh, the God, composer. Yeah. And you know what it's like time. being a composer. You both know exactly what it's like. You do not want phone calls coming when you're flat out. You just don't yeah. want that at yeah. all. Um, so the, the, the whole idea is that you kind of interpret it and do. I think you have to use common sense and do, you know use your own musical uh, initiative to kind of interpret what 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 it is. I mean, the, the way I look at it is audio is always king out of everything. Doesn't yeah. matter what the MIDI says. Yeah. If the audio is doing that, that's that's what I follow because the MIDI is so unpredictable. Yeah. As you say, it doesn't relate to the audio. As you said, you've got to interpret it. It's almost as if you are the player. 
So the music gets put down in front of you. So if you put a piece of music down in front of any player, they will interpret that music, you know. And as an orchestrator, you get X amount and you have to interpret that as well and put it into what you believe the composer yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. expected. That's, that's basically that's basically what it is, I think. And that's why I've been kind of doing a, a series of blogs and set up this from Door to School uh, Facebook group because I want people to understand what this job entails because I think there is a lot of confusion around what it is an orchestrator really is doing. You know, I still speak to people who think that it's like a piano sketch and it, it's a problem for me as an orchestrator because if they don't know what they're expecting from me, I then end up getting pestered by the composer because they're like, what are you doing to my work? I know that sounds bizarre, but it's like they, yeah. they, they genuinely don't know what they are to, to expect from me. So I think the more everyone knows about these kind of job roles, the better, really. I mean, I had an interesting case that happened. Uh, I won't say which job it was, but a friend of mine got called onto a job and they said they needed a copyist. When actually they didn't mean copyist at all. They meant orchestrator. Quite a big difference. Uh, Quite a big difference. Yeah, so he ended up orchestrating the score and they were like, they were like two days. That, that's a problem if you don't know the difference between an orchestrator and a copyist because they are wholly different. You know, there's a huge difference yeah. between yeah. those two job roles. Um, so I think, you know, the more people that know about it, the better, you know. So your Facebook group from Door to Score originated as a book, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, you know, it's a follow-on from the book, just kind of either digging out tips from that specific book or adding to adding to it. Um I just thought it'd be nice to have a, a a group really that could talk about this sort of stuff because you know there's stuff like orchestration online, there's groups like that, but that's a world away from what we do because this is what I'm trying to get into people's head. There's a there's a, a huge difference between classical orchestration and studio orchestration. You know, in a classical environment, you are you get a year to write a piece. You might end up orchestrating it yourself for a start, and uh, you know with us with a studio session, it's there's not much time at all there's probably someone else doing it for you um and you've got to understand the way musicians will interpret things if i know that something's going to cause a question i will answer it in the score in the part before it even gets to the studio because it's just an experience thing you just know yeah. that there's going to be a question come up so for example there's there's a thing that i do if you've got first first violin and second violin trem cello and bass trem but all the violas are, you know, just arco, normal. Yeah. I will put Semza Trem in brackets in the viola. Just because otherwise they'll go, oh, I think the orchestrator's forgotten to put a trem marking on our part. You just know it's going to happen. So you, you counter that question before it comes up. I think the benefit of being an assistant or something like that and not being in the hot seat for like two or three years, you get to you get to see all this in the studio. You go to the studio... You absorb everything. You go, ah, so yeah, I mean, that's happened. So to counter that, to save a bit of time, I answer it in the part before it even comes up because they're just going to think it's a mistake. It's not a mistake. I did that on purpose, but they don't know that, you see. So they ask. And of course, questions occur and questions waste time. So time is money. You know, I think there's something to be said for working as, as an assistant when you start out. You can learn so much and there's no pressure on you. I mean, all those years that I did... Well, actually, there was, there was about a year before I met Simon when I was going to various different sessions. And of course, you know, there's no pressure on me. I just turned up, watched. Nothing bad would happen to me if anything went wrong. You just pick things up. So when, you're, when you are in the hot seat, you, you know what to expect. I can't think of anything more terrifying than turning up to a session not knowing how it works. Like even down to every three hours, you know, there's a, um, you know, it's a three hour, hour break, three hour, hour break, three hours, that sort of thing with 15 minutes break in the middle it's like 
just things like that, you know, just the small things, just studio sessions are quite anxiety inducing and pretty stressful. Um, so you, you don't want to be any yeah, more stressed yeah. than you have to be if you don't know the procedures and protocols and stuff. No, nor do you want to be surprised when uh, the orchestra representative comes in and tells you that you've got to stop oh, recording because you've yeah. gone over time. And yeah. like, we've still got half the score to record. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean we've gone over time? I booked oh, the day, God, didn't yeah. I? So Tristan, for a typical day working on, let's say, a TV yeah. drama, because that's what we're, we're talking about, what would that look like? as a kind of typical day in the studio doing session? Uh, what you mean in the recording studio with, with the live musicians? So we'd turn up about nine o'clock, an hour to get ready, just kind of settle yourself down. Ten o'clock, red light goes goes on. You always start with a cue that everybody's playing on so that the engineer can get the levels right and check all the mics are definitely working. And then uh, and then you kind of you start going, you know, you start exactly on ten and then you just work your way down the key sheet, really. Um, and then, you know, there's a 15-minute break every three hours. So that's normally about an hour. It's normally scheduled about an hour and a half in. You know, after about an hour and a half, you say, right, let's have a 15-minute break. And then generally, for something like a TV drama, there's, it's generally just one three-hour session. It's not usually a whole day thing, just because, we, you know, TV drama cues are, are about 20 seconds long. And often yeah. they're just like two chords sometimes. Mm. I, remember, I remember seeing John Lund's Downton Abbey stuff and... <laughs> a lot of it was just like eight bars and because he's so well versed with chamber orchestra of london because i've done it so much he's so quick and you know the whole process is so streamlined and slick now i don't think they even get to the end of the three hours i think they it only takes them about two and a half hours yeah i, th- I think that there's a lot to be said for having the right people there with you oh 100 it's all a team effort yeah uh, i'm sure sam won't mind me saying but um when we did wizards versus aliens um he because this was, you know, his one, well, not his one, I'm sure he's going to get another chance to stand up in front of an orchestra, but it was his first time as a composer where he could stand up and conduct the orchestra for the session. So he says, I'm going to do it. And I thought, you're a very brave man. (laughs) Um, And he did it. um, And then at the end of it, said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> it was so stressful, yeah. bless him. I mean, he was wiped out. Oh, I mean, it was, it, was, it was difficult because, as you know, Tristan, prepping that amount of music for, we had two sessions, so two three-hour sessions. So we had a day with uh, uh, the BBC National Orchestra of Wales just to record. So we needed, the thing with it, is, it was the first series, so we needed to get the theme tune done. So that obviously takes quite yeah. a big chunk out of your allotted time already. Um, and then, so Sam got X amount done and it was all going well and this, that and the other. And then, you know, we got X amount done. And then he said, no, I'm, next next year we'll have someone else. And we had yeah. Jeremy Holland yeah. Smith come and do it. And we got another 10 minutes of music recorded. That's the thing, you see. It's it's. I would say this to anyone, and although it seems bizarre at first, it's like, hold on, so I've got to pay a conductor £1,000 for a day to to just conduct but it's like it's not it's not just that it's like when people don't want to get a copyist it you will save money you would your life will be infinitely less stressful i guarantee the amount of times that sam and i were reaching for the talkback mic in the studio to talk to jeremy to just say could you just he yeah. was already on it with the orchestra before we'd even press the button because he was he was mm. he'd obviously conducted them a lot before and we had ben yeah. foster the year after um, 
and got even more music done because of the amount yeah. of Doctor Who that he's obviously done with, uh, amongst many, many other things that he's done, um, done with that orchestra. Um, so, yeah, definitely having somebody who can just be there, who's comfortable, who, uh, you know, is totally au fait with the orchestra, just makes life so much easier. 100%. 100%. And, you know, you'll finish early, players will be happy, everybody be happy. That's what you want. You know, these, these players are the ones that are playing your music. If they start getting bored or irritable or they feel like they're not being challenged or, you know, so many things, you know. You want to keep those people happy. And I think having a team around you, even if that means paying a little bit more to take that stress yeah. off, because you know what it's like working at three in the morning under, under intense pressure, mistakes start setting in. And we're only human. They, they will set yeah. in eventually if you're that tired. Um, yeah. And you just you don't want, really want stuff like that to happen as, as best you can. So I always think there's something to be said for having a, a team of people that you trust and you know will deliver and they'll see it with a fresh pair of eyes. Yeah, exactly what you said, basically. What advice would you give to your younger self or someone wishing to start a career in this industry? I would probably say patience. I'm not very good at being patient. I just wanted to be up there (laughs) straight away. And, of course, it doesn't happen like that. Yeah, be patient. I think that's one thing that I've probably not been very good at, to be honest. I've tried to kind of skip ahead as much as I could. And, And although that's, you know, you think that's probably a good thing to get as many jobs as you can, all that sort of stuff. You, I don't know. I feel like you, you kind of lose perspective if you, if you're not patient. I, I just think patience is one of those things. You just, it will come to you eventually if you just keep you keep work, keep working hard. It will come to you. Patience with a dash of persistence. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think I was pretty good at being persistent when I was when I was. I mean, it's the only reason. That's the only reason because I I I um I actually worked with Sam. Dan's brother first that was one of my first jobs kind of you did outside of Simon he took this is what I'm so grateful to you know people like Dan and, and Sam and because you know they, they kind of take a chance on you and uh that's you know that's a big thing when somebody's got no credits you know that's huge um and people did do that to me very early on so it's very lucky so yeah I worked with uh Sam on something and then just helped out with a little bit of stuff on the last series of Wizards versus Aliens. Yeah, I've been. I'm very, very fortunate. You, you obviously need a bit of luck, and you know it's all about being persistent. But yeah, I would say going back to your question, which I have got away from, um, patience. I would say. Well, that was a rather good interview, wasn't it? Absolutely fabulous. Well done, Tristan. If you work in the industry and quite fancy having a little natter to us, then we would love to talk to you, uh, especially if you happen to do one of the skills that we haven't thus far featured. You can get hold of us through makingasoundtrack.com. Yes, you can. As we're in the notes section, we have had a little reply about the previous episode, Workflow. Um, uh, this was on Instagram, and this came from PJ Cat otherwise known as uh, Peter Catamull from the band Telemann. And he just put, this is great, which is nice. That's what's a lovely thing to say, isn't it? It's a lovely thing to say, yes. Thank you, Pete. We love feedback. We do love feedback, yeah. Okay, finally, I'd like to remind everyone that Dan and I are going to the pub. We're not going to have an event or a live podcast or anything like that. We are simply going to go and have a drink and a catch-up and if you'd like to join us, it doesn't matter if you work in the industry or you are a listener or 
anything. All welcome. Just come and have a chat if you want. Uh, we'll be at the Betjamin Arms, which is basically in St Pancras Station in London. Our social media channels have all the details, as does the website at makingasoundtrack.com. Cool. Is that a wrap? I believe that's a wrap. That's a wrap. So, how do you find us online? Makingasoundtrack.com will tell you all you need to know. Links to the podcast, social media links, there's information about us, and anything that might be useful. We'd be really grateful if you could give us a good rating on your podcast app if you like what you hear. It will really help us. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell someone. Share our posts, give us feedback. We're relying on your generosity to spread the word. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah! Going to the pub. We're going to the pub, baby. We're going out, out. Oh!